welcome back to Empires of the Future. Uh, we are here today, moving on in our discussion on the book, Strange New World, by Carl Truman. If you joined us last week, you'll remember that we began this, uh, this new phase in our podcast where we are taking a book and kind of, uh, as we read through it, discussing it here on the podcast. And uh, we started it last week with kind of the introduction into the book, Strange New World by Carl Truman. And uh, we move on today to chapters two and three uh, for our discussion today. And primarily looking at the what he calls the romantic roots of sort of modern day thinking of the self. Um, the title of chapter two is Romantic Roots. And much of the book, and I don't know that he comes out right away and says it super bluntly. It certainly isn't found anywhere in the title um, necessarily. He talks about the sexual revolution in the subtitle, but um, largely deals with this new phase, this new rise in transgenderism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what he, he, he's kind of doing throughout the book, and we see heavily in chapters two and three, is establishing kind of the uh, philosophical framework that is built up into what we now see manifesting itself in the transgender uh, transgender revolution, kind of modern gender theory. Right. And um, so it's, he really does a good job, I think, in in chapter two, as we um, as we have kind of read, um, just looking at some previous thinkers, previous philosophers, uh, and their understanding of the self, and largely looking at at individuals who have spent time thinking about. Uh, self-identity, self-expression, what it means to uh, be human and, and live in a, uh, an authentic way. We talked a little bit last week about authenticity and yeah. uh, build on that a little bit more today. But what did you think about this chapter, uh, chapter two, Jackson? Um, so I, we are a good mix for this um, because, you know, you and I were just talking about this morning that um, you're not as much into philosophy itself, and I'm just a... a an amateur interested in it. I, I do find it uh, interesting at just kind of a basic level, but both of us have an interest in sort of uh, pop culture and ideas at the popular level and how people get into them. And that's been useful uh, already, what we talked about in the previous uh, session, and will be very useful here because <laughs> certainly most of the people I grew up around were not interested in philosophy too much. Um, and that's fine. Uh, one thing that probably is one of the most important things to know about this book is that, well, whether you're interested in philosophy or not, these ideas are getting to you and they Mm -hmm. take a lot of different vehicles to get there. And so we'll be looking at that. Um, Where we are looking to cover ground today is kind of to answer a simple question. You know, if um, 60, 70 years ago, someone had said, well, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body well, people would have said, well, obviously we need to examine uh, your mind and, and examine why you think that way. Mm-hmm. And it is a fundamental drastic change where we live uh, now in some corners where if you say, well, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, they go, well, well obviously we need to change your body then. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just a very different change. And so what we're looking to dig up and investigate is, okay, when did this start and how did we get here to the point that we are now? Um, and wow, uh, it started a lot further back than I expected. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, 
One thing that's strange about sort of Victorian England is I don't know how much of the popular imagination it consumes, especially for uh, Americans. We're, we're pretty us-centered, uh, more interested in our own roots uh, in this country, I think, in a lot of cases than, um, than maybe uh, England. But especially uh, there's an aversion to sort of uh, Puritan social mores uh, and... And then does that, that seems to transfer to some degree to, uh, oh, well, t people used to be strung up real tight, and, and thankfully we've mm -hmm. loosened up quite a bit. Um, what's strange about it is, is that uh, certain ideas that we're about to see here uh, really started, well, even before Victorian England, and it took a long time and a lot of development of these ideas to get to where we are now. Um, and so... We'll look into that, and uh, we're trying to cover quite a bit of ground today, uh, starting with Rene Descartes, born in 1596, and moving all the way through uh, Frederick Nietzsche, so actually two uh, distinct periods and two chapters of this book, and uh, Nietzsche lived, I believe, in the 1800s, um, and so a lot of ground to cover here. Yeah. It is. And, and you're right. You, you know, I, I will fully admit I am not a philosophy guy. And so this book is kind of stretching me a little bit, I think in a good way. Um, but oftentimes the question is, you know, who cares? Who cares what these thinkers, quote unquote, are thinking? Like, what, what does that have to do with me? And, mm -hmm. and actually, I think Carl Truman makes a, a good point in the book in, in chapter two when he makes an, basically makes an argument for why it matters to look at these guys. And it's because a lot of what they're saying is how people now are living. They're living according to basically these philosophies that these guys have been promoting, producing, they've come through their works, but they aren't doing so because they are huge fans of Rene Descartes or, uh, or Rousseau or, or Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. You know, most of them don't even have never read a thing by any of those people. Right. Maybe they've heard their names, but they don't, don't know much about them beyond them, right. beyond that. And yet, as you read these guys in sort of their their way of thinking, their philosophy, you realize, man, this is basically the the thinking of the world today, uh, right. pr particularly of Western culture. I would say, um, I think you see other cultures that don't necessarily fall um, exactly in the in the same line as what we see uh, here in the United States or in Europe and kind of Western cultures. But um, yeah, he kind of makes a point for why study these guys. And the reason is, even though everyone is already living kind of in this reality, it's like a fish in water. He uses that analogy that that we are just living in this water that we don't even recognize mm -hmm. that we're this is the water that we live in, that we're just a fish in water. Uh, these individuals um, are some that have actually put in the work and sat down and examined the water. They have examined um, what it is that they are thinking and why they are thinking that mm -hmm. way and kind of gotten just seeking to get to the, the roots of why that is. And, um, and yeah, what's interesting as they, as they do this. And as I've been reading this, these couple chapters is seeing, um, man, so much of, of what they write is, is so contrary to the Christian worldview. And I'm sure they would have a response for me as to why I think the way I do, but, but largely the, the point that they make, and, and it begins with Descartes and kind of his, um, dualism that he sets out, that he uh, sort of emphasizes the body and the mind, this dualism that exists in, in humanity, and in doing so kind of sets up this, um, uh, at times, opposing natures or opposing 
um, I guess, forces, one being the body, one being the mind. And what we've seen over time in our culture is the mind winning out um, over even the body and that kind of taking prioritization. As you said, this is what we see in, in the transgender kind of ideology that we have today. But, um, but what you see as you read these guys, if you're reading this from a Christian worldview, you're seeing just how wrong a lot of this is. You're seeing how contrary it is to what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of amazing when you begin to think, read that and see that and see really what these guys are doing is they're examining uh, sinful humanity from the perspective of sinful humanity. And they're not seeing it as sinful. <laughs> they're seeing it as uh, an ideal uh, to be attained and chip away all the bad things outside of the self, uh, all the other bad things to expose and bring to light the the inner self, the inner being, self-expression, and uh, and make that kind of supreme. And, and you see developments throughout, but that's largely what's happening is you're seeing sinful men trying to examine what it means to be man by looking at themselves and coming to very wrong conclusions because they have very bad starting points. And I would like to add uh, another element and issue to that, uh, which is, well, look, even before we became sinful uh, as humans, we were limited mm-hmm. and there is a desire to not be limited. Uh, one of the philosophical impulses, and you see this in Descartes, so we'll, we'll uh, short version of Descartes story here, 1596 to 1650 is when he lived. Um, is that he was seeking a basis for certain knowledge. And that is sort of uh, the philosophical impulse. Uh, I mean, the, the basic philosophical impulse is to keep asking questions, to just ask questions forever. But one of the goals is, without a doubt, certain knowledge. What's underneath the knowledge that I'm checking here? And what's underneath that, that knowledge? And he was looking for absolute knowledge. And so he sets himself this task of doubting everything in his work, Discourse on the Method and Principles of Philosophy. Um, he realized that this path of radical skepticism still required the existence of the doubting subject. And so if, you, if you've ever heard of Descartes, that's how you arrive at one of his popular phrases, uh, I think, therefore I am. Probably the only other corner you might have heard of him uh, is Cartesian coordinate system, where uh, one, one, over one, up one, over one, up two. If you remember learning that, uh, probably what? early high school maybe um and those are the two things that he's often known for but what he did was okay i'm certain that i am thinking and wow i've arrived at some sort of certainty of knowledge and uh what carl truman draws emphasis to here is he might not have even meant to do this but what he did was is he centered his thinking on himself and his ability to think mm-hmm. and that's Probably, if, if you want to line this out today, we're going to have some big, important ideas. And that's the, the first big, important idea is that he says, well, if I'm a thinking subject, then I am certain of my own thinking and my own self. So therefore, the existence of myself or the, the fact that I am thinking, that's a starting point. Well, that's sort of the first turn that you have to account for. Uh, it places human thought at the center of the project here. And shifts it, what you're saying, shifts it away from the thoughts of God or mm-hmm. from the thoughts uh, of community, really, in a lot of ways. It shifts, us to, shifts it to an individual thought. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a significant shift. Yeah. 
uh, and, and makes a big deal. And, and like you said, he emphasized the mind over the body and sets up this conceptual framework. And that is the first sort of beam in the structure that's going to make mm-hmm. the big question that we're dealing with today possible, which is wh- how can you, what are the steps to move from, I feel differently inside of my body, therefore, what do I do? And the shift that we have seen from, I should change my mind or I should change my body. Why in many cases today is it so simple as, well, obviously I should change mm-hmm. my body. Uh, so that's, that's a big, uh, the, the first big shift there. Yeah. Even from that concept alone, the phrase that so many people are, are at least have heard probably, I think, therefore I am already, you know, this is the, the, basically the foundation he's laying for how these kind of, this kind of thought about the self has developed. But even in that one line, you can see how like transgenderism has grown from that because you simply add a few words. You say, I think. I am a woman, therefore, I am a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's not even that hard of a stretch to see how this leads to that. Um, this idea of the of inner thought of how I perceive myself and what I am perceiving to be ultimate truth and reality, maybe even in contradiction to the physical reality that I see in and around me. Um, so he, he really doesn't talk much about Descartes. He, he basically says that, what you have just right. summarized. Um, you, you pretty well have summarized the, the page and a half that he devotes to, uh, to René Descartes uh, and then moves on to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Right. Is that a correct pronunciation? Yeah. yeah. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Yeah. Yes. Nailed it. Uh, so <laughs> he moves on. French. I know. I, I am very not French. Uh, and so he, he begins talking about him a little bit and, uh, and points out how he basically builds upon this framework that has been laid, uh, whether, you know, he does so specifically in a desire to, uh, improve upon, uh, Descartes or not, he largely takes kind of these same ideas and, and runs with them. And, uh, he was, uh, alive from 1712 to 1778. Um, and so he, he came certainly a little bit after, um, after Descartes. Um, but what we see in Rousseau that uh, is kind of I, th- I found fascinating was that he is uh, considered to be a relatively brilliant man. You know, the right. the uh, Carl Truman describes him as strange but brilliant. Right. <laughs> um, and I think that is probably a pretty accurate definition for him. Uh, he kind of had his hand in everything. Here's what's cool about the guy is that he did a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, he what does he say? He, he wrote novels, plays, uh, musical composition, worked as a civil servant, um, developed philosophies of society and education, um, all kinds of stuff uh, that he did and, and was influential in the uh, French Revolution, the artistic movement known as Romanticism, which we uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about later. Um but this same guy, this is amazing. So there's so much, you know, seemingly good to be said about this guy. Um, but what is also true of him, and he notes it in the first paragraph, is that he was also obstinate. He was nasty, at times paranoid, um, and uh, frankly was a rather terrible father um, in that he, he, he sent all five of his children to an orphanage um, to suffer relatively terrible lives. Um, 
And so what, what you see in this figure is he like, kind of starts off as um, you see a very, um, man, dynamic in a way, uh, complicated life. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy that, while he was brilliant, had all kinds of, of ups and downs and, and problems and this and that, um, which makes it all the more interesting that this guy writes this autobiography called Confessions in which he basically just kind of examines his life from, yeah. from childhood on and basically works to kind of diagnose why he does what he does, what turned him into the person he is today and kind of come to some conclusions. And Right. There was that story about how uh, his friend asked him to steal asparagus yeah. out of his garden. So the, the his friend, garden. Yeah, yeah the, the friend asks him to steal asparagus out of his own family's garden in order to sell it, in order to then give money to his friend to help them to have food and different things because they were devoting money uh, elsewhere. And this is, uh, this is illustrative of kind of a typical uh, Rousseau idea that, well, he had me do a bad thing, but I did it for a good reason. But you see how society is, is corrupting uh, yes. individuals like me. Um, and, and so in a way, he's sort of a Freudian, Rousseau is, mm-hmm. pre, before Freud, kind of just examining, using his own life as a method of examining uh, ideas that he has about uh, how people work and where the origin of evil is and these sorts of ideas. Uh, Rousseau, one of his most famous ideas is sort of the noble savage, yeah. um, and that's been popularized uh, just that, well, th- this idea that, well, in, in the uh, sort of pre-industrial, pre-kind of dominated by cities, uh, state, man was just living at peace, uh, which historically is so not true. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, the easiest source for probably people to get a hold of to find out how uh, man lived in that state is the Old Testament, uh, which is a very violent uh, and dramatic book that that is what humanity was like but if you don't like the old testament then i would just encourage you to read any actual history of any corner of the world and you will find all of the brutality all of the cruelty in addition to mothers loving their children and and, i mean just the mixture that we see now of good and evil constantly living side by side but i had misunderstood the depth of uh and and, it's, and I guess the point in a lot of ways of Rousseau's um, ideas that he did believe and, and really pursued the idea of the noble savage, but I, I guess I just hadn't applied it in the way that I saw he applied it here, um, that, that he really seemed to believe that, well, inside of us are the good impulses, inside of every individual uh, is the good impulse. And if the individual acts on it, uh, then that is, that is the good thing. And, and uh, so he, we push that here, but the, mm-hmm. the two ideas, there are two ideas in, in Rousseau's section mm-hmm. uh, that, that should make our number two, number three big ideas of the day. Uh, because really, Descartes is very focused on the mind and thinking, yeah. but Rousseau in a lot of ways is opposite. He's very focused on feelings. Uh, he locates identity in the inner psychological life, and feelings are central for who you are. You need to ask questions about your feelings. 
and what you feel like doing. And so that's the, that's the number two idea that locating identity in the inner psychological life and be, having feelings be central because that is very different from Descartes and one big difference between Descartes and Rousseau. But together, they then give a lot of credence to, okay, so if the inner life is the life we should be focusing on and if feelings should be given a lot more uh, focus and a lot more consideration then that gets us to the third big idea in uh, Rousseau's second, and that is uh, he sees society as exerting a corrupting influence on the self. Where does evil come from? Rousseau says, oh, well, it comes from society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he sees society as exerting a corrupting influence to the extent that society prevents us from acting consistently with our feelings, and to that extent it prevents us from being who we really are. So he says two things about society. It prevents us from being who we really are because it doesn't let us act consistently with our feelings. He simplifies, who are you? Whatever you feel like doing, that's who you are. And what's so strange about this is, is as I'm saying this, this probably sounds very familiar uh, to a lot of people. Well, that when Rousseau said it, he was the lone person saying this. Right. And the fact that it feels familiar should just uh, tell us how influential he and his ideas have become. And uh, I don't know where you think of uh, encountering them first, but uh, everything from Star Wars, you know, uh, trust your feelings, reach out with your feelings, um, to a lot of the tortured characters uh, that I remember from the 80s. who do you think of when you think of uh, where where uh, these ideas have really been sold in our culture and pop culture? Um, I think of uh, positive thinking, um, motivational speakers, or even more simplistic uh, encouragement cards in the Hallmark store. Sure, uh, where you've got this idea of follow your heart. Uh, trust, trust yourself, believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of this idea of, you know, leaning, leaning heavily upon your own feelings and, um, you know, yeah, that, that, that's probably for me. Um, one area I would think of, or maybe like Oprah, you know, yeah. you see a lot of these ideas sort of whether she does so intentionally or not popularized by Oprah, mm-hmm. um, this idea of, of feeling, um, be- becoming, how you feel, how your your self perception, um, feelings being central, and then external forces such as culture, oftentimes standing as a um, as an obstacle to you living your your fullness of self. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's kind of all over the place more than we realize. It is, and I wonder sometimes about, um, well, for instance, Noble Savage, um, the most recent movie to really carry this idea is Avatar, of which apparently, what are we about to get, seven more of those, I'm hearing? No. Seven more? (laughs) I've heard that they have seven planned. Um, So get ready for more of that. If you haven't had enough of big blue people who are Noble Savages. um, Are they going to do it like a a series, like Disney's doing with all these things now? Series of movies is what I Series of movies. If I heard that right so get ready um but then the other thing that i think about this is that i think consumerism itself um often caters to us just uh, thinking well whatever you feel like having whatever you feel like doing treat yourself have the things that you want buy it 
that how much con- encouragement we get to just do what we feel, buy what we feel, go after what, go after what, whatever we want. Um, so that's coming at us from a lot of different directions, and uh, the person uh, to really, as far as uh, a philosopher goes, this is what philosophers do. They um, sit at the very front end of uh, the questions that society has, and then they pose different answers. And often, I mean, one thing that it is is plain from what we're seeing is that, you know, again, Rene Descartes lived in the early 1600s, um, and Rousseau in the, uh, well, most of the 1700s. It just takes a while for these ideas to really be disseminated mm-hmm. and move to, um, to stories, to popular works, to novels. Um, but then they work themselves out and, and, and begin to get to the popular level and have great influence. And so uh, mm-hmm. this is what we're seeing. Yeah. Romanticism is, in a lot of ways, uh, the result of these ideas. And at its heart, Romanticism sought to find authentic humanity in an acknowledgement of and connection to the power of nature. And that's a direct quote from Mm -hmm. Carl Truman. Uh, It sought to find authentic humanity in an acknowledgement of and connection to the power of nature. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is important as we move towards kind of the conclusion of talking about sort of the romantic roots and the, the romantic basis of this is that there is still a nature. There's still yeah. a goal. We are not just in this uh, situation where you go, well, you just invent yourself, whatever you decide you are, that's what you are. We're not there yet. Mm-hmm. There is still a connection to a basic nature. And mm-hmm. in fact, if you read the works of romantics and uh, it talks about, I only mentioned two, but I don't know if you remember others, but um, Percy B. Shelley, uh, who wrote Mont Blanc and Daffodils by Wordsworth, um, this focus on nature itself, but then nature as this thing, uh, so living nature as this thing that brings to life sort of our inner nature, Mm -hmm. uh, this is a big push of the Romantics, and they saw contemplation of nature as having a deep ethical impact upon individuals who engage with it. And that's, yeah. that's why you have authors who arise, uh, such as Shelley and Wordsworth and others. Um, they, they still believe there is something that we are trying to draw from the basis of who we are. They see um, what some people would call like a constitution inside of us. Mm-hmm. And they're asking, how then do we bring that to life? Similar mm-hmm. to a tree. You know, that a a tree has a basis. How do you bring it to life? Well, there are reasonable means. You're talking about water, sunlight, uh, a certain amount of heat, that there are basic conditions, and they still relied on that. And so we're going to have to, here in a moment, move to the other shoe that's going to have to drop to get us somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. You might be thinking at this point, you know, when we talk about these guys and and expression of yourself and and the way you feel and think and, and your your mind reigning supreme over your body and, and other um, sort of realities. Um, you might be asking like, okay, where does morality fit in all of this? It sounds like they maybe are denying a, a sort of objective morality. They actually were not. They, they were not seeking to undo morality or, or, you know, claim that there was no place for morality, but to say that morality is rooted in finding true human nature, mm-hmm. which is to be found within, without the, pollutions of culture and society kind of 
infesting us mm -hmm. so that therefore uh, the best way to to come to a correct morality was to bring out your human nature what is most natural and the way to do that they proposed was to be impacted by nature mm -hmm. um, this is a large part of romanticism and why in in the romantics and the artwork and in the uh, writings that you see so much of of this kind of rural um, living off the land, right. nature being depicted was so vital in all of that because they saw that as, as kind of the way to access human nature and, and therefore maintain a, a sort of right morality. It, in fact, they he uses an example um, that uh, is is built on um, by a guy named Wollstonecraft, uh, and it's an he uses the example of what he calls the uh, Aeolian harp. And basically, what is described is that we, as human beings, are like this kind of harp. And the harp was similar to what we would call wind chimes today, right. these wind chimes that you hang them out on your, on your porch or outside, and the wind blows. As the wind blows, the chimes make a nice little sound, and it's very sweet, very relaxing, very nice. Um, these harps were similar in that uh, they were affected by the wind. The wind would blow across them, and they would play you know, notes and, and make this kind of noise. And right. Uh, the illustration that's drawn is that human beings are instruments uh, that play as they should when moved by the power of nature. Mm -hmm. um, and and that therefore, all the impact of nature itself is good for us so long as we are not muffled or hindered by other surrounding kind of attributes and things that, that weigh on us, um, such as society yep. and, and societal norms and expectations. And so... Um, you know, their, their argument was not that morality is non-existent, but that it is to be found in yourself. There is a common thread of human nature and a morality associated with that. Um, so that, that was what they were arguing. But as we'll kind of see going forward, that idea is done away with uh, as we move forward, as you said. So, Right, so let's, let's shift gears because the, the big thinkers that we will look at here in the 1800s are Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, and the next chapter is called Prometheus Unbound. And so while we have picked up this reliance on feelings and the focus on the internal life, um, we have to ask this question. Why do many believe that human nature has no intrinsic moral structure or significance? Because that is not mm -hmm. present in Descartes or in Rousseau. Um, why do we believe that the only possible guidelines anyone should have for themselves is whatever they may freely decide? Uh, another way to put it is, is there a definite human moral code? Mm -hmm. And so for the origin of the idea that any moral code is oppressive, uh, you need to look at two thinkers, Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, so Marx's story is tied into another philosopher and one that if you look at philosophy at all, um, you'll run into Hegel. You can't get around, uh, GWF Hegel and his, his dialectical can be summarized this way. Uh, this is, this is Carl Truman's summary and it's helpful for those of us who are not trained in philosophy. He says this human self-consciousness or how human beings think about themselves and the world around them changes over time. It's, it's, it's in a sort of conversational mode. Um, so for instance, ancient Greeks thought differently than medieval knights and who thought differently from uh, merchants in Venice in you know, the 1800s. Or, and, and that doesn't sound uh, shocking, but Hegel really focused on ideas. 
that the, I, the engagement and interaction, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, is sort of one of the big uh, summaries of, of Hegel about what he sees happening in the world, uh, that the ideas engage with each other and are changed by that interaction. And so the most important questions are about purpose and morality. What is the goal of life and how should we behave? And Hegel was very interested in this process of becoming. What is humanity becoming? Uh, what, what is the change in humanity? And, and where is it going? And he seemed encouraged about this. And he viewed the spirit of humanity. And, and for, for him, spirit is a technical term that does not mean what we might necessarily mean as Christians. Uh, the, the inner life, he, he uses it in a very technical way. But um, he viewed the spirit of humanity as on its way somewhere and improving itself. Um, and that is... Uh, that is sort of the philosophical water that Marx found himself swimming in, but he takes a different direction. He does take a different direction. You know, Marx, uh, Karl Marx, as we kind of see, and he, he outlines through the book, um, was a materialist, and mm -hmm. that affected the way he, he took Hegel's ideas and previous ideas and kind of ran with them and how it affected his, uh, his view of the world. So he believes the world is all there is, that there is no transcendent realm, no God or gods behind this material universe that might provide any form of sacred foundation for moral order. Um, but as, uh, as uh, Truman points out, he says, Marx's materialism goes further. He believes that the material conditions of life, specifically the economic relations that exist between people, decisively shape how we think of reality. In short, those economic relations that have the most profound impact upon our self-consciousness and our identity, this also means that how we think about reality changes over time because economic relations change over time. And so he begins to shift the conversation and, and sort of way of thinking completely around economics. Yeah. If, you, if you read this book or read about Marx, what you'll see is a discussion on economics because he believes that everything uh, basically in the world, in our culture, in society is political to one degree or another mm -hmm. uh, and that it all revolves around a certain kind of power struggle. Right. Um, and yeah. so we could summarize those. Those are the kind of the number four, number five big ideas for today. And those are uh, Marx's ideas that one, there's no God, no purpose, no definite transcendent moral order. And, and, if there's not that, what is there? And that's number five. And in his big idea, well, what there is is there is physical reality, and fundamental to physical reality is economic reality, uh, where you're born, how much money you have, what the uh, labor situation is uh, in 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 the situation you grow up in, and so economic conditions determine how we think of ourselves, our identities, and our reality. And this is a shift then to Fundamental to Marx is think physically only. None of this. Mm -hmm. he, he leaves Hegel behind as far as all this talk of uh, spirits, any kind of abstract thing. He focuses on physical reality, and in particular, what you said, economic reality. Um, so every sphere of human community becomes political, and economic activity is at the forefront. And the other thing that's important then for Marx is this concept of alienation. Mm -hmm. That man cannot enjoy the fruits of his labor. That you may work in a furniture factory, uh, you may put you know legs on chairs all day long, but you neither enjoy a chair yourself 
nor receive uh, proper wages given that you produce a lot of chairs. You're a part in producing that. And he summarizes, he, he uh, actually reduces the complexity of this issue down to, look, that's a situation where you are not receiving what is due and the working class needs to rise up and to take possession of the means of production and all this things that probably people have heard about Marx come in there. Yeah. One one of the, one of the biggest things about Marx. And if you hear someone talk about neo-Marxism today and and these kinds of things, these, these concepts that come up are largely dealing with power struggles and, and every sort of structural societal system he sees as a means of oppression, a means of uh, injustice uh, towards some group or another, uh, some individual, some some person or another. And naturally, what results then is he views religion in this way, mm-hmm. that his view of religion is uh, is kind of molded around his view that societal structures are a means of, of um, sort of abuse, a means of of holding other people down, mm-hmm. um, oppression, you know, uh, and that is that that shapes his his view of religion, and he sees then that religion, uh, in his view, is simply a form of oppression. It is a form for those who are more well off or have some sort of standing religiously, um, those elites to oppress those under them and do so under the guise of some sort of authority. Namely, God. Right, right. So he follows David Hume, and uh, Hume is pretty famous in philosophical circles just as a radical skeptic. But what's strange about the skeptics to me is that, um, yes, we can doubt. We as humans are capable of doubt. What what I find so strange about skeptics is uh, we are limited creatures, and so certainly uh, doubt is something that we can do. The way I phrase it is uh, Hume trusted in his doubts. He, he, he said, I know how much I can doubt, and I'm going to doubt as much as I can. And, and this, in a lot of ways, I think leads to um, sort of the rampant agnosticism in our day, as if it's shocking that, that we can doubt, that we are very small things who can't come to a lot of certain conclusions that we want to. Well, still yet, the, the world we live in calls for courage to do something. Yeah. And, and you can doubt whether it'll make a difference, but it makes a difference to do something about our world. The, the question that's posed to you really to every day is, okay, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And um, so Marx follows Hume, and he follows another important philosopher named Ludwig Feuerbach, who believed that our idea of God was simply a projection of idealized humanity. This was, I had to read this a couple of times, uh, Feuerbach had this wild idea that basically all that was happening in uh, beliefs that people have had about God is that, well, they are idealizing the total of humanity, and then they're projecting their idea of God onto what they've idealized of humanity. And they they hope and wish that God existed, but all they really see is the best of total humanity, and, and they're projecting that. And this is uh, Marx followed Hume and Feuerbach, and he expressed that dominant religion, what, what you said, dominant religion was simply the moral concerns of the people who were in power. Mm-hmm. Religion is a power play. Mm-hmm. And in his case, uh, Marx's, the bourgeoisie, <coughs> excuse me, factory owners and merchants uh, were the ones who were in power. And so Marx says this, 
the uh, quote, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. Yeah. And um, Marx's, uh, I, I would advise anyone who uh, thinks Marx has uh, some good ideas. I, I think for every person that we examine, um, we should take stock of their life as well. Mm-hmm. And strangely, Marx's story is pretty similar to uh, Rousseau's story. Uh, that he uh, abandoned. I mean, his children lived in poverty, uh, died. Uh, I mean, such poverty that, uh, and in some ways people will lionize and say, well, in his day, his ideas weren't appreciated. Well, it's one thing uh, to not have your ideas appreciated such that they don't make you money. It's another thing to just refuse to provide for your for your family. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so Marx is, in my opinion, not a sympathetic character in, in that regard. But here... We see his statement, his bold statement, that he sees uh, the abolition of religion, the removal of religion as fundamental to pursuing happiness. But uh, if, if, if anyone finds this sympathetic, keep in mind he's defined happiness in purely material terms. Right. Um, that <laughs> stuff is happiness. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. Right. Um, I, I think if you believe that, that's foolish. I, yeah. I think that, that our world does not bear that out. Um, but that's where Marx lands. Yeah. I, I have to say, you know, as I read these and man, you know me, I'm not a philosopher, but I, I automatically become just severely skeptical uh, of, of any ideas presented, uh, you know, of such gravity as these presented by individuals of such low moral character. And I know that's an objectively moral statement that I'm making that, uh, that not providing for your family is immoral, that living a life of of rampant free sexuality, doing whatever you want uh, in that respect, a sort of, uh, I don't know, we're not talking about this, but a sort of hedonistic perspective on life that is that is evil and immoral. And when I see men uh, living these kinds of lifestyles, yet proposing to, to have answers to these kinds of questions, man, you, you ought to be skeptical skeptical of those individuals right. uh, severely. And so I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Marx. Right, and, um, and while we're on the subject of individuals I think you should be skeptical of, uh, Frederick Nietzsche uh, follows on the heels of Marx, um, but he was interested in a question. Um, for those who, uh, perhaps like me, uh, picked up the idea that, well, people were really religious uh, up until, say, um, the 1950s, uh, and then they began to decline. Uh, there has been a waxing and a waning of religion. There's a reason why we talk about the First and Second Great Awakening. Uh, and, and, and so even in his day, in the 1800s, Nietzsche was uh, surprised at how religion was still hanging on. Um, and he was interested in that. Why does the influence of religion persist even when so many do not believe it? And that's, um, that is a question he pursued. If God does not exist, he thought, then there is no meaning, no ground for reality, no morality. This is an empty universe full of purposeless creatures, and they ought to admit that and live in that light. And in this way, Nietzsche is a very bold thinker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He but but we, when we use the word bold, we don't claim that that is some great virtue necessarily. <laughs> uh, it, it is a virtue divorced from other virtues. Yeah. Uh, and so he says there's no morality. There's only power. People attempting to exert power over one another. 
uh, to Nietzsche, if there is no such thing, if there's no God, then there's no morality. And, and in his statement that uh, God is dead, we mm-hmm. killed him, he, he said, look, we have society now and we look at each other and we don't believe in God. We don't think we need God. So therefore we have to engage in self-creation, becoming whatever we decide to become and whatever works for us mm-hmm. and then living in that light. Uh, and so that is Nietzsche's Superman, mm-hmm. the overman. Uh, this, this concept, and he talks about this in the book, the concept sort of got mixed in. Uh, Nietzsche himself was not uh, Aryan. Uh, he, he was not for German supremacy. Yeah. Uh, this was a use of his philosophies. Yeah. Uh, he was not, uh, he didn't hate Jews. He wasn't anti-Semitic. And so that has become mixed, and we, we want clarification of all the ideas that we're talking about. And so for Nietzsche, Superman, the overman, is the one who can manage the task of self-creation. Uh, if any, in case uh, anyone wants to know, by the way, two Jews uh, in the early 1900s knew uh, and heard about this Aryan idea of Superman, and they invented the Superman in the red and blue tights that we're all interested yeah. in as a person who stood for something better yeah. than the Nazi Superman. So, uh, But that's neither here nor there today. <laughs> um, the only moral question to Nietzsche is whether the act is what one really wants to do and if he or she is free of all constraints. And in a lot of ways, um, this, is, this is a good number six idea for us to land on today and in a, a kind of conclusion to the mixture of these big ideas. Nietzsche sits down and he says, all right, if we really believe this, then let's do it. Um, Nietzsche himself ended his life in a very lonely state where he lost his mind and and a lot of things didn't work out well for him. But uh, the the challenge for this, there's a lot of reduction. Uh, Reduction in philosophical terms is when you just say, I don't want to consider a lot of these more complicated elements. I want to reduce this to fewer elements and then act on them. Well, that's what you're seeing, and this is, frankly, what I think Nietzsche is calling for here as well as what Marx called for. I don't think it's wise, but I do see it as being pretty popular that a, a lot of people are following this line of thinking. And uh, Nietzsche is a, is a person who said, well, if this is what we're going to do, then let's do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. One of his, um, uh, you know, we haven't really talked about him, uh, but there's another guy named... Uh, Oscar Wilde, and I don't know if we need to talk about him too much, but uh, kind of kind of building on Nietzsche's ideas, uh, he says, uh, most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions, their lives a mimicry, their passions a quotation. And he sees this as a severe vice. Mm-hmm. And he, along with, along with Nietzsche, am I pronouncing his name right, Nietzsche? Some people Nietzsche. say Nietzsche, some people say Nietzsche, it's fine either Nietzsche. way. Nietzsche. Uh, their their idea of you know the fulfilled self right living uh, is you know self expression artistic self what, what how is it you said it creating oneself yeah self creation uh, self creation yeah that and uh, and to the point that you know the claim here being made is that um, unless you are just the ultimate self creator and unique in every aspect of your thinking and life uh, then you are. Uh, just mimicking other people that you are not living most right according to the inner self and therefore uh, you're not living right yep. uh, because you are just mimicking what other people you see other people do around you 
um, and you see the idea of rebellion beginning to form here. That that rebellion now becomes one of these supreme virtues for these for this kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. That if you are just doing what society expects of you to do, living according to these rules that are so oppressive uh, and un un rooted in anything because there is no God, uh, then you are just a, you are just a pawn. You're just a puppet. You're a, you're a sheep. Uh, and that is looked down upon and it is, um, not good. And therefore we see the rise of kind of a rebellious spirit of uh, rebellion for rebellion's sake. You know, um, I'm not opposed to rebellion when you are rebelling, uh, against injustices, when you are rebelling against, um, that, which should be rebelled against, mm-hmm. um, but to rebel against what is just something that is normative or societal, just to rebel against it, right. uh, I think is a very dangerous posture to take. But it's a posture we see regularly today, and um, and yeah, I mean, you just you're just, you're seeing the effects of this this kind of thinking today. And again, like we said, people today have not um, been reading. Oscar Wilde, uh, or, you know, uh, Nietzsche, um, just extensively to where they're coming up with these ideas. We're just seeing them living out the ideas that sinful human beings naturally want to come to. Why? Because we love ourselves. Mm-hmm. We love ourselves more than we love God. And that's the problem. And I, you know, I've, I've heard the quote before God is dead and, uh, but I've never read much, uh, by Nietzsche. And, um, but I, I was kind of struck by this quote that he, that he said, where he was talking about God being dead. And he kind of talks about uh, Buddha, but, you know, relates it to to God. He says, after Buddha was dead, his shadow was still shown for centuries in a cave, a tremendous, gruesome shadow. God is dead, but given the way of men, there there may still be caves for thousands of years in which his shadow will be shown. And we, we still have to vanquish his shadow too. This idea of we must utterly destroy the idea of God, and, and in his mind, the way he's describing it at least, um, put God to death uh, and kill every remnant of God before we will ever be truly free, truly happy, um, living our most free self as ourselves free of God. And what we see in this kind of statement, but throughout history, is just the lies of the devil being repeated over and over again. Uh, because this is not so different from what the serpent said to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, their desire to um, be like God, to free themselves from this bondage of God's oppression um, is what we see exhibited even here still. And what I think is so fascinating, when you think from a Christian worldview, and I know we haven't we haven't related this much to Scripture yet, and um, hopefully we'll, we'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, but what we see here, this idea of God being dead, we have killed God, but now we just need to kill every remnant of him, every shadow that exists in every cave that is still being seen of God today. And the, the kind of converse perspective, it, it is a religious viewpoint, even if he would deny that, it is a religious viewpoint. And we see the converse in Christianity that in Jesus Christ— our sins have been vanquished. Sin is conquered. Death is defeated. And yet, what do we still see? We still see remnants of sin. We still see remnants of the old man in our lives. Mm-hmm. And it is our call. It is our our purpose uh, to 
put those to death. That is what we are called to do, uh, is to ultimately put to death sin, be Mm -hmm. rid of those things, kill every remnant of sin that remains within us. uh, And by doing so, we will be um, becoming more and more sanctified, more and more like Christ, moving more and more and more towards glorification, which is utter fulfillment, utter joy, utter happiness, if you want to use that word as Mm -hmm. they would. And so, um, yeah, I mean, these ideas are just so contrary to the biblical worldview, and it's it's good to see that, and it's good to see them for what they are and expose that. What is the strangest uh, thing about the ideas that we've been looking at is that no, they don't leave room for a relationship with God, but they don't really room, leave room for a relationship with anyone. That's right. Uh, it, there is no room for the existence of other people uh, in in these ideas. There's so much questioning of inner self, of what is the desires of the inner self, um, that the tension, I mean, to me, life is lived in tension, and we should expect it to be lived in tension. The, ten- the tension that is abandoned here is the tension that is fundamental. Mm-hmm. How do we best live with the relationships that we have been given? Because they are all gifts. Every relationship we've been given in our life is a gift. Okay, how do you manage all of that then? With the highest gift being that you have already a relationship with God. No matter what you believe, you have a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. The Bible describes it as, if you're in your sins, enmity. You you hate God. Yeah. Uh, and... To some degree, you can see the presence of this here, that this this yeah. hatred of God to go, well, I don't want to be defined by anyone else. Well, look, you didn't make yourself up. <laughs> and and if, you, if you want to put aside the question of God for a moment, you didn't decide to be born. You're a part of a much longer chain. And that start means your middle and your end are also tied to other people. And what are you going to do about that? It's This seems, and this happens in philosophy um, a lot, to where uh, they isolate a question at the start and then they kind of come to a conclusion that is right in line with the question. Well, look, every question had a context and you have to go back to the context when you arrive at your answer to the question. And so what you end up with here is, well, I have definite desires. Well, yes, of course you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we should question our desires. And in some cases, what's so curious about uh skeptics and about the heirs of skeptics is that they stop questioning certain things that they should keep questioning. Uh, our desires and our, our hearts themselves should be questioned. Mm. Uh, we, we should not just look inside of ourselves and go, well, obviously everything in there is all good. Uh, is, is, have you checked that for evidence? Mm. Are you sure that that's true? Because man, I know me, I've been mm. around me a long time and there are <laughs> things about me that uh, are not trustworthy. Yeah. And and that is where the Bible then comes in and says, oh, good. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, and, and one of the most important questions you can answer is, well, what do you do with the very scary fact that you can't necessarily trust yourself all the mm-hmm. time? Uh, the Bible speaks there. That's right. Um, the, the concept, the idea of following your heart, which is largely born out of all this kind of thinking too, um, and, and what you're talking about. What does the Bible say about looking within uh, to find fullness of happiness and satisfaction and, and true morality and rightness. Well, well, what does the Bible say about it? Some of you may know this verse, but Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the reality that we live in today. The, the doctrine of original sin, which is just 
vehemently denied by these thinkers such as uh, Marx and, and Nietzsche um, is the reality that we see in and of ourselves. And you know that, like you said, and, and everyone who truly like examines themselves sees this in them. Uh, the doctrine of original sin is, is what informs us to the reality that, in fact, what, what Rousseau says is absolutely untrue. His, his argument is that man is basically good and right and, and basically born morally upright in every way, but is corrupted outwardly. He says, man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. And then uh, uh, Truman responds. He said, one might therefore respond to Rousseau by saying, man is born utterly dependent on others, but everywhere tries to persuade himself that such an obvious, obvious fact is not actually true. Right. Uh, and this idea of, like you said, everyone around you from this in this worldview becomes a kind of at best neutral, but most of the time obstacles to your living out your fullest life, right. to you being uh, happy and, and living the way humans ought to live. Right. Um, and that is not a healthy place to be. And it is, it is a denial of what the Bible says about our heart is a denial of the doctrine of original sin that we think we are somehow good in and of ourselves and corrupted exclusively outwardly. Now, now that's not to say that, you know, our society, our culture around us, the world we live in doesn't have effects on us. It does. And it'd be a lie to, to deny that. Um, but the idea that seeking to simply live out our inner self make our outward expression match our inward being is somehow the answer and all will be right if we do that is just it's just a lie yeah, i agree well we've moved uh, quite a ways where we're going is to politics uh how is this going to move out of the inner life towards the political life and that's mm -hmm. what we're going to be discussing uh in our next session and so we will still have uh, a few more of these, but we're looking here at uh, Carl Truman's book, Strange New World, and this has been Empires of the Future. And we will see you in the future.